from a fanciful vision of other worlds where all is beautiful and good and just, we come back in somber mood to Earth, which seems indeed a sad and silent planet. Man on Earth knows in his heart that other worlds are also inhabited, but he is reluctant to admit even to himself that Earth is only one small house of the many mansions in the Father's house. And worse, that she is a fallen house, a disobedient house, a wayward house. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no guys not named George. This is Encounter 306. As we wrap up this third batch of episodes, we've got one more contactee to look at. One more contactee whose experiences bridge the very loose concepts of mind, body, and spirit that have been running through the past two months of stories. Today, George Hunt Williamson was born in Chicago on December 9th, 1926. And for a very long time, um, there was very little publicly known about his life before the whole saucer thing started in the 1950s. But recently, there's been an English translation of a Williamson autobiography, or rather biography, since he's dead, that's come out called The Incredible Life of George Hunt Williamson, colon, Mystical Journey, colon, Itinerary of a Privileged UFO Witness. And it was written by Michael Zerger and Maurizio uh, Martinelli. It was published in English in 2015, published in Italian in 2013. And this book, aside from having two subtitles apparently, gives us more insight than we've had before, particularly because it incorporates information from an unpublished autobiography that Williamson had been working on. During the 1940s, Williamson was involved with archaeological studies of Native American communities in Illinois and eventually Arizona, where he had moved with his parents from Chicago in 1947. Despite a lack of formal scholarly credentials, something that would be played up greatly in the UFO press during the 1950s because he did have an honorary doctorate and, you know, this was sort of attached to him at various points in various, various appearances, and so he doesn't really have a doctorate. Aha, we've caught him. Um, he never really claimed to. He always acknowledged that it was, a, that it was an honorary doctorate. But despite this lack of credentials actual organizations. He, he was actively involved in archaeological research in the 1940s. For example, he did teach anthropology uh, courses at the U.S. Armed Forces Institute, which was an institution which provided continuing educational opportunities to enlisted personnel. And in 1951, he was hired by the anthropology department at the University of Arizona to do some research work prior to a larger study uh, within a um, basically doing oral history and oral testimony gathering from some Native American tribes. There's some evidence that Williamson uh, was more than just a researcher, that he danced in uh, some, some powwows and other gatherings in Arizona. And the Zerger and Martinelli book ascribes his dancing skill and involvement in Native culture um, to this. Uh, they sort of imbue this with some sort of 
The life of George Hunt Williamson offers us a rare opportunity to observe, almost as they happen, the mysterious cogs of supernatural mystic forces which urge a man to go to the end of himself for what he knows to be true, because he knows that this is the only path which he must, which he can take, to leave his mark in his present incarnation. Whether or not Williamson was we do know that his interest in flying saucers was sparked by reading Donald Kehoe's book, The Flying Saucers Are Real, in 1951. Williamson later explained that he found the flying saucer stories to be similar to some Native American stories, and his newfound interest shaped his ongoing relationship with the Native Americans he studied, as he would explain in his 19... I now collected my legends and so-called myths in a more serious manner. Where before I had not deliberately looked for saucer stories, I now intentionally dug them out. At the Chippewa rice camps, the squaw dances, the country grocery store, and in the fishing boats, we talked saucers, the red man and I. In early 1952, Williamson and his wife immersed themselves into the saucer craze and became friends with Al Bailey and his wife Betty, who were interested in saucers as well as history and anthropology. Another shared interest was spiritualism, which, as we've seen in past installments, was very much part of the saucer scene during those early years. Williamson recounted that he, his wife, and the Baileys enjoyed experimenting with automatic writing, a form of channeling in which messages are transmitted uh, sort of physically to a medium who write, is compelled to write them down. On August 2, 1952, Williamson and his compatriots received their first message from the saucers. You are a dead civilization. We want your cooperation. Time is limited. I am Na Nine of Solar X Group. I am the leader of a contact group. Good and evil forces are working now. Organization is important for the salvation of your world. Contact us as soon as you can. There is a mass of planets in the organization. Why are your peoples unbelievers? You have become the research. The time is up to you. Look up into the skies above you. Don't lose contact with each other. Na Nine of the Solar X Group. I love alien names that combine letters with numbers. I, I think that really does sound somehow more alien than Orthon or Furkan or Ramu or Ashtar, but at the same, same time, you know, much sillier than Orkan or Furkan or Ramu or Ashtar. As part of his introduction to the Space X Group or whatever, Na Nine, um, as is typical in messages like these, included uh, explanations of some strange alien names for various things. Earth is Saras. Uh, Mars is Mazar. Remember Mazar and the Mazarians? Yeah, another in that brief encounter a while back. Yeah, Mazar. And the saucers, uh, which are called bells, which I think is very sort of poetic and evocative. And again, as usual for messages from aliens to humans, at this time. Um, one of the crucial things that comes from Na Nine and his fellow aliens are warnings about a coming destruction that will impact the Earth. We have not wanted to interfere with men of Saras before. All men must make their progress wherever they are, but we cannot stand by and see another waste. We are all of the same creation. Warning! There will soon be a destructive blast to be felt on Saras. This is of your own manufacture. Evil planetary men who abound will attempt contact with evil men of Saras for destruction. 
The good men of Ceres must unite with the Ben men of the universe. Great destruction can be caused by your H-bomb. It could all come too soon. Some destruction will come for sure. We have been alerted. We repeat, it is most important that you organize. According to a note from Williamson, Ben men means good men, which makes sense in context, but it doesn't rhyme, and it doesn't conjure up images of a squad of guys named Ben saving the world. And the saucer beings are considerate. In addition to being concerned for the well-being of humanity, they understand the value of lunch. Kadar Laku speaking. I am head of Interplanetary Council Circle on Mastercraft. I am elected from the universe. Why don't you all go eat now? We were wondering when you were going to wake up to the fact that you are hungry. We have stomachs too, and we are empty. Meet you here at 8.30 tonight. Signing off. I've read a lot of contactee stuff over the years, and I'm pretty sure that I can state without reservation that my favorite contactee instance was that thing we just heard right there. The aliens breaking off communication because it's time to go eat, and we'll meet you back here at 8.30. I, I love that. A later communication from August 17, 1952, shared interesting details about the nature of the solar system. I am Zoe. I am head of a Mazar contact group, but my home is Neptune. I am going to Pluto soon. Pluto is not the cold, dreary world your astronomers picture it to be. Mercury is not a hot, dry world either. If you understood magnetism, you would then see why all planets have almost the same temperatures regardless of distance from great sun body. The messages continued over a period of several months through automatic writing and eventually through radio waves. Williamson explained that, a, um, that the aliens were able to transmit on frequencies that could be received by a standard portable radio. Subsequent messages followed the same themes that we've heard here. Um, the universe is completely, or the solar system, rather, is completely inhabited. All the planets are habitable because of magnetism. The H-bomb will destroy the Earth. The asteroid belt used to be another planet until they behaved the same way humans do and blew themselves up. Very similar to what we've heard from other contact, um, other contact materials. And if you've been a regular listener, this should be this should be apparent. You should be picking up on some strong similarities between the messages received by Williamson and those propagated by other contactees, especially those who, who were involved in channeling, who channeled Ashtar, or even the earlier Mark Probert contacts reported by Mead Lane and the Borderland Science Research Associates. So August 1952, Williamson and Bailey start experiencing their contacts. And near the end of 1952, the Williamsons and the Baileys traveled to California to meet George Adamski. Williamson and Adamski shared not only an interest in flying saucers, but also in spiritualism and philosophy. The Williamsons and Baileys, you'll recall, were witnesses to Adamski's initial 1952 contact with Orthon. And following this encounter, the Williamsons moved to California to live permanently, part of a number of followers and associates that began to congregate around Adamski. Zerger and Martinelli single out the desert experience as the crucial culmination of a number of mystical experiences in Williamson's life. The first contacts with extraterrestrial intelligences from August 1952 onwards commenced a significant paradigm shift, which became more radical after the experience of Desert Center. 
His first life came to an end that day, around four in the afternoon, while he was making plaster casts of the imprints which Orthon had left in the Californian sand. After, he could not delay or backtrack any more. It was the indubitable sign he had waited for. He will finally abandon everything, work, house, comfort, to pursue his mystical quest. Jerome Clark, a UFO researcher and historian who compiled a massive multi-volume UFO encyclopedia in his entry on Williamson, recounts that before too long, Williamson and Adamski began to disagree, mostly over the value of psychic contacts as opposed to the physical contacts that Adamski promoted. Williamson wanted to write about the messages he had received, and Adamski attempted to dissuade him. Now, I don't expect that you're all keeping detailed notes on every episode, but perhaps you noticed that Williamson's contacts, supposedly, began in August of 1952. George Adamski's famous desert contact was in November of 1952, a few months later. Which leads us to an important question. To what degree did these contactees base their stories on previous contactees' encounters, and to what degree did they either, being completely non-cynical, happen you know, in a similar way to a bunch of different contactees, or being extremely cynical, how did they copy off each other? One of the issues that complicates this is that of the actual chronology of the sequence of events. When did things actually happen? Williamson claimed his contacts took place in August, but these contacts that were published in The Saucer Speak, that book wasn't published until 1954. If Williamson, which is about a year after Adamski's book, and quite a while after Adamski's contacts first started being discussed in newspapers and things like that, if Williamson is being truthful about his contacts, then publishing his account after Adamski published his certainly makes him look like he's a copycat who sort of predated his contacts to get the jump on Adamski. If he fabricated his contacts, then he was a copycat who predated his contacts to get the jump on Adamski. The Zerger and Martinelli biography somewhat helpfully places his 1952 experiences in a broader context, including prior visionary experiences with Native Americans, but like any of these stories, getting mired in either debunkery or cheerleading is an exercise in frustration. In any event, Williamson would continue to support Adamski's claims as well as his own, although, and I find this really interesting, in various lectures and articles, he would claim that Adamski and Orthon had some sort of elaborate psychic communication and contact, whereas in Adamski's account, it's much more reading body language and using sign language and things like that. The telepathy is is limited. So I'm, I'm not sure how much um, Adamski appreciated Williamson inserting that psychic aspect into it. The eventual sort of split between Williamson and Adamski and Williamson's embrace of psychic connections to the space visitors doesn't seem to have dampened other people's enthusiasm for his ideas. And during the mid-1950s, he engaged in the usual saucer-speaking circuit, including an appearance for the Detroit Flying Saucer Club. In fact, in 1955, Williamson seemed to reside in Detroit for a while, establishing the Flying Saucer Council of America in conjunction with Detroit saucer guy Henry Madet and speaking around the state, eventually moving back to California in mid-1955. 
Aside from the saucer speak, Williamson's other books, such as Other Tongues, Other Flesh, and Secret Places of the Lion and The Road in the Sky, delved into various mysteries beyond flying saucers. Especially, um, which makes sense given Williamson's um, background in anthropology, the discussion of ancient mysteries and their possible connection to modern flying saucer reports. In many ways, Williams was one of the founding fathers of the ancient alien strand of saucerdom. Secret Places of the Lion, in particular, started off with a list of questions addressed by the book, very few of which are explicitly related to saucers. Who built the Great Pyramid? Who was the Pharaoh of the Exodus? Did Solomon live in the 16th century BC instead of the 10th century BC? Was a great stone ever pushed away from Christ's tomb? Why did Mark leave Paul and Barnabas at Perga? Was Peter ever really in Rome? Did the Garden of Gethsemane belong to Mary, mother of Mark? Are there fantastic historical treasures which constitute a legacy for mankind hidden under some of the wonders of the world? Was Akhenaten of Egypt, later Simon Peter? Was Joseph of the Coat of Many Colors, later Moses? Are there hidden pyramids in North America? Is there a secret temple under the Sphinx? Why did they say that the pharaoh was descended from the sun? Was the Grand Canyon of Arizona caused by a great earthquake instead of gradual erosion? Secret Places of the Lion also includes an utterly charming and somewhat shady request for money to go into a trust fund to support Williamson's research. Dr. George Hunt Williamson is returning to Europe during the coming year with a fully equipped expedition to continue the important archaeological work and discoveries which he made in Italy during 1958. These discoveries concern the link between Europe and South America and indicate beyond doubt that the ancient civilizations of the two continents and the lost cities of the world have much in common, as well as establishing the existence of UFOs thousands of years ago during Atlantean and Lemurian times. Dr. Williamson's expedition will not be officially sponsored. Funds are urgently needed to make it possible and as successful as possible. A trust fund has therefore been set up, and, as Dr. Williamson's publishers, we are appealing to all readers for financial contributions, whether large or small. All monies, which will be acknowledged personally, should be sent to Dr. Williamson, care of Neville Spearman Limited, 112 Whitfield Street, London W1, and marked Trust Fund. Williamson's career would go in some other interesting directions as well. One of the most well-known of Williamson's exploits was his connection with William Dudley Pelly. Kelly ran an organization called Soulcraft, which published Valor, a sort of mystical magazine, in Noblesville, Indiana. Pelly, however, had spent a while in prison during the Second World War for sedition, having been the leader of a political organization called the Silver Shirts, a right-wing group active during the 1930s that did have connections to German-American Bund and other extremist organizations. Williamson went to work for Pelly, writing a UFO column for Valor. Some writers, such as Nick Redfern and Jacques Vallée, assert that Pelly's connections with the contactees in general included a relationship with Adamski, and that Williamson's work with him began in 1950, before Williamson's interests in saucers began. Zerger and Martinelli, however, date Williamson's work with Pelly as beginning in 1954. They also challenge the Adamski-Pelly links, citing a 1979 letter from Williamson in which he denies that the two ever met or even spoke by phone. This does not, of course, mean that Williamson didn't have a connection to Pelly. He obviously did. While his work with Soulcraft was fairly limited, it provides some insight into perhaps Williamson's views beyond the saucer field. 
at least to the extent that he would link himself to someone with Pelly's reputation. Along with his work in Valor, Williamson co-wrote a book called UFO Confidential in 1958 with John McCoy. Scott Beekman, in his recent biography of Pelly, cited UFOs Confidential as a representative example of the way, quote, much of Williamson's work was openly anti-Semitic and, in classic Pelly fashion, linked global oppression with Jews, international bankers, and communism, end quote. One passage from the book serves as a good illustration of this strand of saucer thinking. Every king, president, or dictator on earth is only a figurehead, a tool of the hidden empire. For millennia, this group has been determined to keep the truth from mankind for selfish purposes. They have removed vital books and sections of the Holy Bible until it is unrecognizable. They have written history as they wished to, not as it really happened. But mankind is waking up. Men are no longer content to remain stupid and believe what they are told to believe. It matters not whether the authority is religious, political, or otherwise, for there is only one hierarchy, the international bankers. These secret world rulers will never allow official UFO announcements to be made to the public. If they did allow it, it would spell their doom. If the technology of the space visitors is revealed, it will immediately eliminate the need for oil, gas, automobiles, and practically everything else that drains the public and keeps every family in America on a credit-buying spree until they are deposited six feet under. Aside from the well-worn international bankers code phrase, there's a lot in here that would be echoed later on when the UFO mythos became more deeply entwined with the post-war political conspiracy culture. Here, as with the ancient alien ideas, Williamson was really more of a trendsetter, for better and for worse, than he's been given credit for, or blamed for. There is a lot more to say about Williamson, and I will say it, but not here and now. He plays a role in an upcoming adventure that sort of takes place in the next phase of his career, and we're going to end his story then, in a few weeks. For right now... George Hunt Williamson's saucer life is not quite yet done. I heartily recommend the autobiography of Williamson by Zerger and Martinelli. It's on Amazon, and if you're a member of Scribed, which I may be the only one I've ever met, uh, you can read it there as part of your membership. It's a bit credulous and hero worshipy. It reminds me a lot of the Colin Bennett Adamski book that I mentioned a few weeks ago. But it's got a lot of material, and even in a translated form, it's an enjoyable read. Um, ditto for Scott Beekman's biography of William Dudley Pelly. There's not a lot of UFO stuff in there, but Pelly's a really interesting guy, and it's an interesting period of American history. There are links in the show notes on the website to purchase both books. And that's it for Series 3. There will probably be a bonus encounter in the next week or so, but we're going to kick off Series 4 in a couple of weeks on February 4th with You Can't Say That on Television. Series 4 is going to have a running theme of flying saucer culture and lore intersecting with some of the more mundane aspects of the world and American culture, and hopefully it'll be a nice varied mix of stories. And while episode titles are still in flux, I am particularly looking forward to encounter probably 404, Unidentified Flying Candle in the Wind. You can follow along with us at SaucerLife.com and on Twitter and Instagram at SaucerLife. 
If you haven't already, you can subscribe to The Saucer Life on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app through the RSS feed on the website, or if you're using something like Pocket Cast or Downcast or some other um, good podcast catcher uh, for your phone or other mobile device, if you just search for The Saucer Life in the, the search area, it usually comes up. The Saucer Life is written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.